the uh, second part of uh, the account of Lumpo Cha's visits to the West. And this section is called Duty Yampi, and for a second time. Two years later, on the 30th of April, 1979, accompanied by his American attendant, Ajahn Pabakaro, Lumpo set off to the West for a second and final time. On this trip, he was to visit America as well as Europe. But his first destination was England, where the English Sangha Trust had invited him to give encouragement to Ajahn Sumedha's community and to see for himself the latest developments in their effort to establish a forest monastery. It was an exciting time for the Sangha in England, and a pivotal one. After being based for two years, confined, some of the monks would have said, in Hampstead Vihara, a property had been acquired in a beautiful stretch of countryside just over a hundred kilometres to the south of London. The move was to take place in June, on Lumpur's return to England following the American leg of his journey. In the meantime, he took up residence in Hampstead Vihara. For the first few days, he enjoyed some quiet time with the Sangha. One of the monks he met for the first time, Ajahn Sujito, had joined the community the previous summer after some years in central Thailand. Having heard so much about Lung Po, it was finally a chance to meet him in the flesh. He was not disappointed. This is Ajahn Sujito speaking here. It was more the manner of the conversation than the, than the topics that counted. He had a way of questioning an attitude I had in an affirmative way, such as, having to eat is really a nuisance, eh, Sujito? With a big smile. I made it really easy to engage with him just by saying yes, and yet gave you the feeling that you and he were on the same wavelength, and he was affirming you. After half an hour of this, I felt tremendously uplifted and at ease. He had opened a window onto a world of joy and unfaltering response to suffering. The way out of the jungle of the mind was to stop creating it through fear and self-consciousness. The holy life seemed so simple and was such a good and joyful way to live. It was exactly the kind of message that my anxious and tense mind needed. So Ajahn Sujito had been uh, in Thailand for about three years. He was in a monastery in Nakhon Sawan, um, which is in, uh, sort of towards the center of Thailand, where Suvira's family is from, <laughs> Wat Kiriwong in Nakhon Sawan. And he had pretty much lived in a kuti for three years and, quote-unquote, just four walls and his mind. <laughs> so it was a, a very um, limited... Um, existence, staying there, uh, in pretty much in a solitary retreat um, during that time. He'd have an interview with the, the Ajahn, who was a teacher there, about, about uh, once a day or so, and otherwise he was just uh, in his kuti the, the whole time. And then he'd come to England. Uh, his father had had a heart attack, and so he'd returned to England to be with his family. And then after his um, business with his family and his father's funeral and so forth had been settled, then he he had um, gone to visit Ajahn Sumedho at the Hampstead Vihara. And so he had met Ajahn Sumedho before when both of them happened to be visiting Chiang Mai, where neither of them lived. 
Lumpur uh, Sumedha was up in Chiang Mai and Ajahn Sajita had gone there for a visit and they both happened to, to meet and spend some time together. So when Ajahn Sajita, or the young Bhikkhu Sajita as he was then, showed up at the the, uh, the Hampstead Vihara in 1978, then uh, Lumpur Sumedha had memory of uh, uh, of having met him before and they, uh, they sort of re rekindled that association. So Ajahn Sajita wasn't particularly interested to travel back to Thailand and had um, by that time become quite inspired and uh, interested to be part of uh, Ajahn Sumedho's new venture in England. And um, But he had not met Ajahn Chah, and so even though, uh, <coughs> uh, even though he was happy to be part of that community, he was coming in mostly through his faith and uh, interest in uh, Ajahn Sumedho's teachings. And so then this was the first time he'd actually met Ajahn Chah in 19, 1979, in that springtime. Lumpur's reputation in England had steadily grown over the past two years. Having heard of his visit, Buddhist groups throughout the country had been in touch, inquiring as to the possibility of them receiving teachings from him. In response, Ajahn Sumedho invited Lumpur on a road trip to the north of England and Scotland, a journey during which teaching engagements could be combined with some sightseeing. Lumpur was amenable. The minibus containing Lumpur and his small entourage made their first stop in Manchester at the Samata Society. Actually, it's the Samata Centre. Yeah. And Ajahn Vajiro was the driver. He was, a, he was an Anagarika at that point. So he was, uh, he was the, the van driver. You can, there's photographs of, of them on that trip. And so the fellow in white is Ajahn Vajiro. So the first stop in Manchester at the Samata Centre, a Theravada Buddhist meditation group. Despite the fact that his audience consisted of people committed to inner tranquility, many of the questions put to Lumpur were of a convoluted intellectual nature that severely tested Ajahn Babakaro's translation skills. Uh, so it's, that group is mostly, uh, uh, was mostly centred around Manchester, University of Manchester, and the, the founder of it, um, Lance Cousins, was a, a, a lecturer at the university and also a Pali scholar. Um, so that they had a very hefty um, intellectual slant to the, to the group. One particular questioner took an excruciatingly long time to articulate a question that, in the end, was little more than a, a request for Lumpur to agree to his position on a certain matter. Funny how that happens. <laughs> Before he'd stopped talking, a gently smiling Lumpur turned to Ajahn Pabakaro and inquired whether the man was asking a question or giving him a dumber talk. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Lumpur's replies to the questions were, for the most part, characteristically direct and pragmatic. This is Lumpur's, uh, so this is in some of the questions that he's um, received. When I'm afraid, I feel it in my belly, but, but at other times, the awareness is in the brain. Why is that? To which Lumpur replies, that's just the way it is. Love arises here, points to his heart, and fear and fearlessness. You don't need to talk about the navel or the brain at all. Everything converges here at the heart. When there's a feeling of fear, then who's afraid? It isn't the navel, and it isn't the brain. The feeling of fear, or fearlessness, 
the feeling of pleasure or pain, who is that? Who's the one who feels? It's Nama Dhamma. And um, in, the, the, uh, the, in the footnote it says, uh, in Buddhist texts, phenomena, Dhamma, are often divided into two categories, the material, Rupa, and the immaterial, Nama. So Nama just means mind or, or the mental realm. Rupa means form or the body. So Nama Rupa means body and mind or mentality and materiality. So you have Rupa Dhamma and Nama Dhamma. So the, uh, the phenomena uh, that are connected with form and the material world and the um, Nama Dhamma, the, the phenomena that are connected with the mental realm. Who is the one who feels? It's Nama Dhamma. It's the way things are. The brain and the navel are inanimate matter. There's nothing to them. Rupa Dhamma. Feelings are Nama Dhamma, and it's their nature to be that way. If there are no causes and conditions for them to arise, they're inert. If there are causes and conditions, they spring up in the mind. That's the nature of things. So the great masters say, if you feel afraid, it doesn't matter. Just say to yourself, it's impermanent, impermanent. Pleasure is impermanent. Pain is impermanent. Tell feelings that, and they'll soon disappear. They're changeful. Then another question. I've read in the scriptures that Nibbana is the cessation of suffering. In my meditation, I've experienced a state in which there is no form. The mind is vast, infinite, without suffering. I assume that it is probably not Nibbana. What's your opinion? Nampur responds. Suffering is an immaterial phenomenon. It's not a form which disappears in meditation. Suffering is a feeling that arises in the mind. We don't know what to call it, and so we've agreed on the word suffering. It's a label that we've decided upon. Suffering arises, and then it passes away. The peace of mind you described is merely a calm state of mind. It's not the peace of freedom from suffering. If suffering had come to an end, then you wouldn't have this kind of doubt. There would be no doubt at all. Truly nothing left to doubt. That is the peace that comes through wisdom. With samadhi, you're peaceful as long as you've got your eyes closed and there are no disturbing sounds. If you get home, sounds disturb you. Sorry, if you get home and sounds disturb you, then your mind's in a state of turmoil all over again. You've merely gained the peace of no disturbance. The result of samadhi, not wisdom, not the real thing. If it were the result of wisdom, there wouldn't be this kind of doubt. It would be the end of the matter. <clears throat> but he could also speak in an enigmatic, zen-like, quote-unquote, style that employed simple phrases in a way that confounded rational thought. Again, this is Lumpur speaking here. Suppose you're walking up and down. Walking, you're aware that you're walking. Stopping, you're aware that you're stopping. But suppose you're not walking forward or back, and you haven't stopped. What's that? Exactly where is that? How do you exist at that moment? Now there's no more walking forward, there's no more walking back. There's nothing to doubt anymore. There's no doubt while walking forward because doubt has come to an end. There's no doubt while walking back because doubt has come to an end. There's no doubt standing still because it's all come to an end. There's no more doubt in the mind anymore. This is the nature of wisdom. Nothing is born in the mind. 
So this is a, um, a, a you know, very pertinent teachings uh, for this uh, particular group. The Samatha Center has been functioning for, for many, many years, and um, uh, they have uh, <coughs> sort of a, a good, friendly relationship with our, our community. And um, they, um, they actually asked me to write a chapter for the memorial book for Lance Cousins, and so that uh, we've had uh, good, friendly relationships with them over the years. But they, they do have a bit of a... a um, different focus on meditation, in particular samatha means calm or, or tranquility. And so that uh, that emphasis on tranquility and the development of absorption in meditation does have its um, uh, its uh, effects. So, uh, for example, I, I remember discussing with um, some of the people from the samatha center about uh, retreat structures and um, they were saying, well, how, you know, how do you end a retreat? And I said, well, we just sort of, you know, give a blessing uh, and uh, people take the precepts in the morning and then they have the lunch together and then people go home. And they said, well, don't you have some sort of de decompression time? I said, well, they chat with each other. <laughs> they said, well, you know, did you just, do you let them get in their cars and drive straight away? And I go, yes. So why wouldn't people be safe to drive in their cars? I said, well, they just come out of the meditation. They're not, we, we've discovered people aren't safe to drive. And so, really? So it was the beginning of an interesting conversation because it had never occurred to me that um, by doing a meditation retreat you wouldn't be able to get in a car and drive it. But for them it's, it's, it's enough of an issue that they have a sort of standard, I'm, I, I am assuming it's the same nowadays, but in that time, a few years ago, they had a standard format where you had a sort of a few hours of decompression, like you know, three or four hours, four or five hours, where you would sort of normalize your senses before you were safe to get in a car and drive it. So uh, anyway, the, the time when I had the discussion with uh, the Samatha Center people. It's, uh, it's mostly because most of their practice is jhanas. So they, they go into deep concentration and have some, sometimes we have things happening. Yeah, and so that, that was the, uh, it was an interesting discussion between us, saying that, that uh, because you know, they were also surprised that that um, people would be okay to 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 drive, and so that um, the um, uh, the emphasis on the, the retreats that that we tend to run is not so much on uh, those super refined states of absorption, but you're developing a, a quality of, of mindfulness in sitting, standing, walking, lying down, you know, uh, and that uh, it's an ongoing uh, attentive. Uh, reflective attitude and ongoing mindfulness and an adaptability uh, to circumstance rather than a, a sort of what you, you might call a hermetically sealed environment where everything is sort of uh, protected from any kind of outside influence and so it's um, uh, so in, in terms of uh, Lumpur speaking about that that state of mind uh, and also how that uh, if you uh, if you go home and sounds disturb you, then your mind's uh, in a state of turmoil all over again. So that, that uh, certainly Lumpur Shah was very, very skilled in meditation and could enter those states of absorption himself and could, could teach people how to do that. But his emphasis was on the, the, <coughs> the attitude with which any kind of meditation practice is, is picked up. And in particular, uh, you know, one way that he would phrase it would be to say that you can suffer in every posture, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So you can also be awake, you can be mindful, in, you can be aware in every posture. And so over and over again he would emphasize a quality of continuity in the practice so that whether you happen to be in a quiet place and there was stillness and peacefulness, then 
um, you would practice. Or if there was a lot of activity in business, or the, like yesterday, walking on the London Underground, you'd still be practicing, whether you happen to be standing on the underground or happen to be um, yeah, alone in the meditation hall. There wouldn't be any, essentially, there would be no difference to the practice, just a, a different change of perception and, and circumstance. Any other questions, comments before continuing? Actually, if you practice like awareness, so you're not going to reach the jhana, because it seems to be like two methods completely, doesn't mean joining in some way. No, they, they, uh, they're not um, opposite. I mean, you can develop concentration with a mindful, with, uh, with mindfulness and, and to be aware of what you're doing. That, uh, and there is certain suttas um, where, the, where the, the Buddha talks about that, sort of the, the development of jhana, but also alongside it, developing the quality of insight as well, so that each level of, of absorption, then there's the reflection of this too is conditioned and thus gross, but there is, uh, but there is also the stilling of formation, so that then each of those states of absorption, so first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and so forth, each of them are accompanied by that reflective attitude, oh, this is also something that's conditioned and impermanent and, and not self. So that that quality of, a, of a, say, um, uh, a, um, an overarching awareness and uh, reflective wisdom is not something that has to be uh, sort of switched off or absent in order for the mind to, to enter states of concentration. So that they don't go against each other. And ten, uh, in that particular sutta, it's only at the, the most sort of refined levels of, of uh, meditation, like the, uh, the arupa jhana, like the formless absorption of neither perception nor non-perception, and nirodha samapati. That's the only... The mind uh, knows... This is probably not a problem for you, or for most people here. But, but, <coughs> but in that particular sutta, he, uh, the Buddha makes um, makes the point that the states, those two of the those, those highest states of uh, the cessation of perception and feeling, and and the um, absorption into neither perception nor non-perception, that's sort of so super refined and so uh, one-pointed that the reflective mind can't function in those areas. So, but they can all the way up to the other the first three of the arupa jhanas. I forget exactly which sutta it is. It might be the Maha Asapura Sutta, but anybody can remember? Maybe fifty-two Atta Kanagara. Atta Maybe fifty-two. Ananda speaks about the investigating the jhanas after going out, looking at the impermanent nature. Yeah, I think it's got an A in the title, so it might be Atta Kanagara. So anyway, it's a uh, yeah, it's it's in in the Majjhima Nikaya certainly. Okay, the next section is called Manjushri. From Manchester, they drove further northwest to Manjushri Institute in the Lake District. So Manjushri Institute is on the Morecambe Bay in Cumbria. It's an, I mentioned the other day, it's in an old stately home, um, Conishead Priory, which is uh, on Morecambe Bay. 
<clears throat> so Manjushri Institute in the Lake District, a community consisting of a core of Tibetan monastics and a larger number of Western ordained and lay practitioners. It was Lumpur's first contact with Tibetan Buddhism. He found at Manjushri a different conception of monasticism, one in which the distinction between monks and laity was more fluid than he was used to. The revelation that, in this particular lineage, monks might wear lay clothes and even hold down a job in the local community seemed bizarre to him. It's also within the, uh, the Tibetan community, they, they don't have the same um, system of living on arms or the uh, monasteries being uh, supported by the, the local lay community. And um, there, there's various different reasons for that, I've, I've been told, um, particularly because uh, in Tibet, there was such a huge proportion of people who were monastics, something like 15 or 20 percent of the population, that there's no way that that number of people could all live on arms. So when somebody entered the monastery, it was customary for the family to, to be saying, okay, well, we will provide for uh, this person, whether it's a nun or a monk, okay, here's, a, here's a, 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 an amount of money that uh, is uh, uh, to be used for their, for their welfare, their housing and their food for the next year and so on. So the families would come forward and, and provide support for the individuals. So they don't have the same kind of day-to-day um, -day, uh, arms offering that there is in uh, Southeast Asia. And, um, and so that uh, pattern of um, some of the monastics literally putting on lay clothes and going off to work in the local town of, of Alverston um, or, or around the area was, was uh, quite normal. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Tupton Chodron, who is a, um, <coughs> a, an American nun who was resident at Manjushri in those years, uh, having uh, largely through her contact with, with our community over the intervening years, that her monastery, um, Shravasti Abbey, in, uh, no in the northwest of, of the U.S., uh, she's established a, um, a system of living on, on arms that she said, I'm not, <laughs> I've been a nun for 30 years, I'm not going to get a day job. <laughs> and so... Uh, she was um, inspired to give it a uh, give it a try, and some of her her, um, her students were very upset about this and thought this was um, uh, out of order. But she uh, she stuck with it, and I'm pretty sure that Shravasti Abbey still runs just on on uh, donations nowadays, which is a so she's almost single-handedly trying to <laughs> reintroduce that into the uh, Tibetan tradition in the West, at least. So all credit uh, to her. But uh, at that time. Uh, when they were visiting Manjushri, then it was quite common for the for the monastics to wear, you know, put on lay clothes and go and have a uh, and have a, a job in the town. Do you mean that monastics are just kind of supported on arms? I think so. I think so. But they don't go on arms, do they? But by free will donations, just like. People sort of sending donations or coming to offer things. So I'm pretty sure that's, that's how she still runs the place. I just want to say, um, maybe people don't know, but Abayagiri has had quite an influence on the big places, or Buddhist places around in California, like Tijun uh, Shodron. And also in Oregon, uh, in Portland, the the, the nuns who is, was uh, head of a priory was also is also going on arms because of the influence of Bayaguri and their friendship. And uh, Ajahn Pasanga has given arms ball to the Shasta mm -hmm. who has also established an arms 
uh, kind of round shashta, this kind of shashta. So I just wanted to put that in, mm-hmm. because I felt it's quite important in the way you notice about different children, but I notice other people, you know, other places that have been influenced through the Avayagiri forest tradition, and uh, have been inspired to leave on arms as well, like shashta leaves on arms, I think. Uh, yeah, they certainly go on the arms round through um, through the town of Mount Shasta. Although it would be a short visit, Lumpur appreciated the warm welcome he received from the whole community and enjoyed the colourfulness of a tradition that was as exotic for him as it was for most inhabitants of rural northwest England. The countryside around Manjushri was glorious, and with Lumpur obviously fascinated by the flora and fauna, you know, the, the um, animals and the trees and so forth, so different from all that he was acquainted with in Thailand, a picnic was arranged. After the meal, while Anagarika Philip, and then the footnote is, Anagarika means one who has left the household life and is equivalent to the term postulant that appears <coughs> earlier in the book. Philip went on to become a monk with the Pali name of Vajiro and is currently in 2017, the abbot of the branch monastery Sumedharama in southern Portugal. After the meal, while Anagarika Philip was washing Lumpur's bowl for him, Lumpur approached him, took hold of the bowl, and gave Philip a lengthy and detailed instruction on the correct way to look after it. Soon after, sorry, soon Ajahn Sumedha came over to listen. Finishing his exposition, Lumpur chuckling said to Philip, Ajahn Sumato can teach you the way to Nibbana. I'll show you how to look after a bowl. So that's one of those comments that Ajahn Vajira has repeated many, many, many times <laughs> over the years. And it was a very sort of significant moment for, for him also in a very sort of loving exchange with uh, Lumpur's, sort of, um, Lumpur Char's sort of comment to, to Lumpur Sumato that that sort of uh, yeah. Lumpur Sumedha's expertise is in the, the unconditioned and the, the transcendent and Lumpur Char's uh, attention is also on the, the realm of, of the uh, practical and uh, the, the uh, attending to the, the details of monastic living. Later, in a session with the Manjushri community, Lumpur gave a discourse on the Four Noble Truths. He spoke humorously about the challenges that teachers face with lazy students. He said that he had asked their teacher whether it was the same here as in Thailand and had been told that it was. He talked about the foolishness of wanting things to be other than what they were or could be, saying it was like wanting a chicken to be a duck. He said that the ordinary suffering of being alive was like the unavoidable pain of a doctor's needle entering the skin. The suffering of those who grasped onto things as, as self or belonging to self, on the other hand, was like that felt after being injected with poison. At one point he spoke about dealing with anger. Set down a clock in front of you and make a vow for the anger to disappear in two hours. See if you can do it. If anger really belonged to you, you could. But in fact, sometimes two hours have passed and you're still angry. Other times, the anger's gone in an hour. If you identify with the anger as being yours, then you suffer. If anger is who you are, you should have power over it. If it doesn't follow your wishes, then it's fake. Don't believe it. 
Don't believe in your feelings of happiness or sadness, love or hate. They're all lying to you. When you get angry, is it painful or pleasurable? If it's painful, then why do you hang on to it? Why don't you throw anger away? How can you be intelligent and wise if you don't do that? You've been angry so many times in your life. Sometimes it leads to family arguments. Sometimes you spend the whole night crying. But still you get angry. Still you hold on to it in your heart. And so you go on suffering for, uh, for as long as you live. This is the way samsara works. If you understand suffering, then you can solve the problem. For this reason, the Buddha said that there is no skillful means to free the mind from suffering that excels seeing non-self. That's all that's needed. It's the supreme, sublime remedy. I'll read that last sentence again, just to underline it. If you understand suffering, then you can solve the problem. For this reason, the Buddha said that there is no skillful means to free the mind from suffering that excels seeing not self. That's all that's needed. It's the supreme, sublime remedy. The journey continued northwards. Edinburgh, their next stop, was the city that impressed Lung Po the most on his travels. He had already seen grand, grand stone buildings in London and elsewhere, but he found a whole city built out of stone around the foot of a huge volcanic rock, especially impressive. It filled him with admiration for the skill of the stonemasons. His hosts in Edinburgh included a young woman, Kate, who was shortly to shave her head and become sister, and later Ajahn Chandasiri, a founding member of the nun's order in his new monastery in southern England. During the even, evening question and answer session, she recalls a question on a topic that, at the time, interested her greatly. A professional flautist began to ask about music. What about Bach? Surely there's nothing wrong with that. Much of his music is very spiritual, not at all worldly. It's probably with a Scottish accent. Lumpur looked at her, and when she had finished, he said quietly, Yes, but the music of the peaceful heart is much, much more beautiful. So there's a, uh, also with his time at, at Manjushri, it's a, it was built by um, uh, a, a family that had made a, a lot of money uh, through um, uh, various means in the, uh, in the uh, 18th, 17th, 18th century and was in that era where there was large stately homes were being constructed around, uh, around Britain. And one of the things that, uh, that they, they had at, at Manjushri was a folly. So it was an actual, it was a, a, like an old uh, little castle, but it was built as a ruin. So it was like a, just to sort of sit on a, an island out in Morecambe Bay and look artistic. And so that was something that was hilarious to, to Lumpur, that uh, they, they built it to be a ruin. But it, the idea is just that it looks kind of you know, uh, <coughs> exotic and beautiful and, and has a sort of charm to it. So uh, that was very funny to him, that you would actually build a ruin. And also on the property they had another little another folly where they employed a hermit. <laughs> Someone lived there for 30 or 40 years and their job was to be a hermit. That was there just to be a kind of rissi, a sort of yogi, and that you know, have a long beard and be a, be a hermit living in this tower. And that was a job. And so again, that was something like, you know, just to have, like in the 18th century, that was a sort of 
what was an estate without a you know without a resident hermit so you'd, you'd have someone employed to be the, the 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 estate hermit so those kind of things were very very funny for him also during that that time in manjushri then uh, there was um a uh, an exchange there was one of the the community members who had uh, several small children and um the uh, <coughs> She, uh, they were literally sort of climbing all over her, well, you know, three or four kids, uh, while she was asking this question to to uh, Lumpur, and and she was saying, um, yeah, "It's uh, I'm finding it rather difficult to develop my meditation." Um, <laughs> <laughs> she was quite serious. I'm not I'm not making fun of her, but she was saying, you know, it's a, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm very committed to the practice, and I'm putting a lot of effort into my meditation, but it's I'm finding it very very difficult to concentrate. And literally, he's kind of, you know, kids climbing over and pulling on her hair and kind of tugging on her cardigan, and and uh, I think Lung, apparently Ajahn Pramakara said it was, it was Lumpur was having a tough time keeping a straight face. And, he said, and uh, eventually, he just he said, um, "I think it would be wise not to have any more children. <laughs> four, four is probably enough. You know, if you if you're really interested in developing your concentration, that four children will be enough for you." It's also um, there's uh, uh, this question about about music. Um, there's a, a gentleman who comes on on uh, retreats with with me from time to time, and uh, you know you, when you're giving dhamma talks, you you make these kind of statements like you know all sabay sankara uh, dukkha, you know all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. When the chanting we have, you know. Uh, <coughs> The uh, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair is dukkha. So that you have this this way of talking about the development of insight, you know, that all things are unsatisfactory. And there's a gentleman who is a musician who says, I disagree. Bach's music is not unsatisfactory. It's perfect. And so then we would get into these little sort of dharmic debates together where he would say but you know it's, it's absolutely perfect there's there's, no, there's nothing wrong with it it's not dukkha you know I, I i think you're wrong ajahn the buddha was incorrect in this you know if he had heard bach then <laughs> he would have made an exception you know these kind of things and so uh, had some very again like with the samatha people we have some very lively conversations come out of these uh, uh, discussions these uh, encounters and say well okay let's say for example you uh, you love Bach, you think Bach is perfect, so the dukkha of Bach's music is then you start to lose your hearing, so you can't hear it anymore. But I can still hear it within me. I can remember it. It's all there. <laughs> well, perhaps that uh, your memory starts to get unreliable so that you can't remember how all the notes come together. But I, I still know, I would still know, I would still know. So that the, the mind loves to hang on to... The, the the one thing that is perfect or that we, we hold on to as being um, pleasing. But it's, it, it's uh, helpful to consider that uh, in this respect, dukkha is, is uh, the things uh, that are extremely pleasant or, or uh, say, comforting or that bring a great deal of, of say, a sense of fulfillment or, or um, delight that... Part of the dukkha is when they're no longer available. Like that's why I said to this gentleman, "Well, if you can't hear it, if your if your hearing goes and you can't hear it anymore, well, that's the dukkha of Bach is when it's no longer accessible to you, or you can't remember the notes." But um, uh, so that uh, when people say, "Well, how can pleasure 
how can be what, how can uh, what is delightful or pleasant? How can that be dukkha? When you, when when you experience it, you think yes, this is great. And uh, in the teachings, it makes it clear that the dukkha is in uh, the mind having invested in that when it it uh, it's cha- it changes. It's uh, the dukkha is in the changefulness that it can't be sustained, and that yes can't uh, can't maintain itself. Actually, I'm just thinking of. Um, a really good example that Tupton Chodron gave, because she and I had taught uh, retreats together and did um, a certain amount of teaching uh, together over the years. And uh, a really good example that she gave, say, uh, when someone was saying, well, how, how can, say, the, the love between a, a mother and her child, how can that be unsatisfactory? I mean, that's, a, that's, that's crazy. And she said, okay, so um, the mother and the child, they've been separated. The kid's been away for the summer and is, there, is coming back on the train. Mum's waiting on the platform and the kid's on the train. And so they've been away for three months and then the, the, the train stops and the door opens and the, the, the child and the mother run towards each other. Yay! Hello, hello, hello. So good to see you. So, so that's pleasant, right? They say, yeah, that's, that's really pleasant. Okay, so then if they stand there on the platform and they hug each other for an hour, is it still pleasant if they're holding each other for an hour? Well, probably. Okay, how about 10 hours? <laughs> well, you know, how about 10 days? You know, <laughs> if the, if the, the happiness was in the hug, uh, then if, it, if it's pleasant for, for, uh, for five minutes or an hour, then it's pleasant for 10 hours or 10 days. Well, no, 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 you're just being silly. You know? I mean, of course, after 10 days, you know, that would be more than enough. So, well, you see, so then the contact has become suffering. Oh, you're stupid. You know? <laughs> but I thought it was a really good example that something that is, you would say, is uh, intrinsically pleasant or, or delightful. Well, like if you're hungry and then there's a large supply of your favorite stuff on the server, even if you're the last lay person in the queue, and you get there and you go, yes, there's still some left. Great. And then you have a mouthful of your favorite stuff. You go, oh, this is great. <coughs> They've done a fantastic job. Then you take another three mouthfuls, another 30 mouthfuls, 300 mouthfuls. <laughs> After probably the first 30, you think, um, I think I've had enough of this. <laughs> but if it was intrinsically pleasing, then it would, con- it would be continually pleasing. Uh, it, it's... Its delightfulness often depends on its transiency. Also, with respect to, to music, and, and that's one of the things about people ask about the renunciate lifestyle at, uh, that we have as monastics. They say, "How can you give up music? You know, don't don't, don't you miss it? Or um, isn't that something that you would uh, that your life is impoverished not being able to listen to music?" So, one thing that I, I often say and uh, I put forth as a su- suggestion is that. And our friend, who was the Bach lover on the <laughs> retreat, so he didn't accept this at all. So I said, it's not really the music that we like. It's the place the music takes us to. What happens in the heart when we hear the music, that's what we love. It's not the sound that we love. It's, the, it's what happens within us when that sound is heard. That's what we love. So uh, as I said, our friend did not accept that. <laughs> but I would suggest if... That is a, a very uh, helpful theme of contemplation. And it's the same with, with food, friendship, um, the uh, meditation, 
um, techniques and so forth, and 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 sensory things like um, like music or uh, visual objects. It's the it's the mind that we that we like. It's it's the mind that is 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 the source of the sweetness of the delight, and the object or the sound or the taste has triggered that delight. But what we like is what the where the music takes us to. So that's why for for many people, when that no longer works, when the the when the uh, when the music's over, <laughs> when the, when the magic no longer works, and then you hear that beautiful sound, or it used to be beautiful, and it's like. Eh. Maybe I just need to hear a different musician, <laughs> different recording, or that somehow that painting used to really inspire me, or that rupa used to inspire me. But it's just meh. we we don't notice that it's uh, the 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 uh, the magic has passed. Or with relationships, that person used to be so inspiring, so pleasing, so delightful, and now phew, you know, those charming uh, idiosyncrasies are now just irritating, uh, you know, upsetting uh, annoyances. And so that our mind changes, and so that that uh, I feel is a very very helpful, useful so, uh, source of of uh, reflection. Of course, you can uh, you can find me wrong, but <laughs> I would suggest that it's an interesting, useful thing to to consider. It's not the it's not the music or not the sound or the taste or the color or the shape or the 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 person that you love. It's what happens in you when you're when you're uh, impacted by that. So to continue, the next section is called Disturbing the Sound. On his return from Scotland, Lung Po took up residence at Hampstead Vihara once more. Every evening people came to meditate and receive teachings. The Vihara was situated upon a busy main road and traffic noise was a constant backdrop to the evening meditation sessions. On some nights, the rumble and hum from the road was drowned out by the sound of rock music from the pub across the way. Lumpo gave some advice on how to deal with this distraction. <clears throat> this is Lumpo Chao speaking here. Today I would like to offer you a small reflection. It concerns the view that the traffic noise is a disturbance to meditation. In fact, it isn't true that. Rather... Oh, sorry. <clears throat> In fact, isn't it true that... Rather than the traffic noise disturbing you, it's you that are disturbing the traffic noise. Suffering arises through this kind of wrong view. If we think the problem is the noise, then we aim our remedies at the traffic noise or other people, instead of at the real cause. With wrong view, suffering is endless. Do you have this wrong view in your mind? Investigate this within. Take my words away with you today and consider them. The right view is that we disturb the traffic noise, not that it disturbs us. Or more profoundly, when there is no sense of self, of traffic or of sound, then the whole business comes to an end. Look at your mind and reflect on this point. The crucial mistake was to assume ownership of impermanent phenomena. It was the essence of wrong view. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. What about if you were to sit here meditating today and pain were to appear, but there was no sense of it having an owner? How would that be? Are you close to that view or still far away? Nobody who still has the wrong understanding that pain and pleasure belong to them 
will find lucid calm. What is this practice for? Who is it for? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever reflected on the matter? Again, I'll read that, that last couple of sentences to uh, clarify them. Nobody who still has the wrong understanding that pain and pleasure belong to them will find lucid calm. What is this practice for? Who is it for? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever reflected on the matter? So if you think that there's a, a me who's the owner of pleasure and pain, then as long as there's that sense of ownership, that this is a self or belongs to a self, whether it's pleasant or painful, then the, that's an obstacle to the mind uh, having any genuine uh, clarity and, and calm in a, any fundamental uh, quality, fundamental sense. And that that um, insight into not-self, that letting go of the, uh, imp the imposing of ownership, that this is a me who is hearing, a me who is feeling, I'm the owner of this thought, I'm the, the, uh, the doer of this action, as long as that I, me, and mine is sustained, then there is always going to be obstacles within the, the mind. And that, uh, as he was saying before, that, that um, the, uh, <coughs> there is no skillful means to free the mind from suffering that excels seeing not self. That's all that's needed. It's the supreme, sublime remedy. Two young Englishmen who were to go on to ordain as monks and become senior members of the Western Sangha in Europe met Lung Po for the first time during this period. The first, Philip, now Ajahn Chandapalo, had attended the question and answer session in Edinburgh. I think he was at the University of Dundee, is that right? He was uh, doing a master's degree up in Dundee. Yeah. Uh, had attended the question and answer session in Edinburgh. The second, Chris, now Ajahn Karuniko, was one of the young men who went to meditate at the Hampstead Vihara during Lumpur's visit. He would recall. So this is Ajahn Karuniko uh, recollecting. He used to tease people, ask people questions, and tease them a little bit. So when I sat there and I was at his feet, just in awe of this wonderful man, he looked down at me and said, what do you think it would be like to sit there for one whole hour without one thought coming into your mind? I thought, oh, very enlightened. But he said, like a stone. And I couldn't answer that. <laughs> so can you follow that? So he would also, um, uh, so when people would uh, speak about meditation as the purpose of meditation is to not think. I mean, he would understand that people were oppressed by a, uh, endlessly chattering minds and thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this thing just shut up? That, that was a feeling that was very understandable to him. But then when people would take that too far, they would assume that if only I could stop thinking, then all suffering would end. So um, if people spoke in that way, or, or, or that they asked questions that implied, if you could just stop thinking, then everything would be great. Then he would often, well, that's where the, the chickens would often come into the picture. Well, these chickens don't think very much. You know, they can, the, the chicken, they can, this chicken can sit for days. And they, you know, uh, she, you know, she's on her eggs, she'll sit there for three, you know, three or four days without moving and doesn't think much. So, would you like to be reborn as a chicken? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, 
that uh, he was very clear and in many other teachings that, that uh, he gave um, uh, that the presence of, of, or absence of thought was not the, the crucial thing. It was entirely to do with the attitude with which the, um, the, the mind relates to thinking. And so that he would uh, warn people against that idea about just trying to annihilate thought or just switch thought off. Um, and that uh, rather his inclination was to, uh, to make the, the, the thinking capacity work for you so that it was uh, the, the, the way that you utilize the reflective wisdom of the mind is rather than trying to wipe out the capacity to think, instead you use it to support the development of, of wisdom. So uh, as they say in the building trade, if you can't hide it, make a feature of it. You know, if, you, if, if something's going to be there, you know, that if, if you have a, a beam that's sticking three foot out into the middle of your living room ceiling, rather than trying to, to hide it and pretend it's not there, then you make that a decorative feature. <laughs> You hang a lamp from it, <laughs> you paint it red or blue or pink, so you uh, you uh, you put it to work rather than just uh, uh, hope it wasn't there. So he was having a uh, um, a little exchange there with Ajahn Kuniko, so that uh, sit there for a whole hour without thinking. Well, that sounds nice. Oh, you could be like a rock. Before leaving for America, Lumpur mentioned in a casual tone that it might be time for a change of leadership, and that he was thinking of having Ajahn Sumedho return to Thailand with him. It was the proverbial bombshell. The renovation of the property they had acquired in the countryside, and to which they would be moving in a short two months' time, was going to be a long, arduous task. The willingness and inspiration of, of the community to bear with all the hard work ahead was in no small measure due to the confidence everyone felt in Ajahn Sumedho. It was generally agreed that for him to be recalled would be a disastrous move that would throw the whole project into jeopardy. Having given everybody a good chance to look at their hopes, attachments and fears, and with the matter still unresolved, Lumpur left for America. <laughs> it's called putting the cat amongst the pigeons. And it's probably most of our languages, whether we speak Latvian or French or <coughs> Sinhalese or Portuguese, that we all have our own expressions for this... Um, putting the cat amongst the pigeons. Cheerio. <laughs> so I'm sure he knew exactly what he was doing. But uh, yeah, also during that, that time, there was um, various different feelings about the selling of the Hampstead Vihara and then moving out of London into the countryside. Some of the people felt that was really a bad mistake and they questioned Blumpo Sameda's judgment. They questioned George Sharp's judgment. and The whole story of how Chithurst House began because during this period uh, some of the people in the Vihara were very keen to stay in London like you know, Lumpur Kemadama was very happy and thought the there and, and he was um, say <coughs> following up the the um, say commitment that he'd felt to Venerable Kapiluado in the, in the uh, earlier years when he'd been a student of his and thought it was great to have a place in London it was really important to be there other people felt no I can't stand London it's really we're forest monks we should be out in the countryside you know, we couldn't wait to get out of the city and uh, to have their their own place in the country, so there was also division amongst the people in the in the committee, and there was so it wasn't an entirely smooth um, transition. So that, as they say, the course of true love never runs smooth. Same in monasteries, yeah. and so that uh, there there was um, a certain amount of, of difficulties, disagreements, and so on, and so. Um, 
that uh, Lumpur Cha just sort of casually dropping that in. Um, that was also into the into the pool of other opinions about how's it going to work, what's we going to do, should we do should we be doing this? This is a good idea. Is it a bad idea? Is this a great thing? Is this a disaster? So then uh, there was always already a few cats amongst the pigeons. <laughs> so Lumpur just put another one in, and um, so that uh, <coughs> uh, the um, uh, the move actually took place in June of 1979, and um, so these the, these uh, other exchanges and the trip up to the north had happened before then. Yes. Yesterday you mentioned that in 1977 the sangha was to consist of four monks. In 1977, in 1979, <laughs> who were the members of the sangha at that time? Uh, there was a few more. Um, so, um, Lumpur Kemadama had gone his own way. Uh, Ajahn Sajito had showed up. Ajahn Ananda, Ajahn Viradamo, they were the ones who'd come from, um, they'd come in 77. And then Kirisaro, um, his health, he was an American, but he had been a, uh, uh, living in England, he'd been a uh, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So he had been living in England and he knew uh, Oakenholt Buddhist Center from when he was a layman. So he had been very ill in Thailand, so he'd gone back from Thailand to live in England, hoping to sort of improve his health a bit, living in a cooler climate. So uh, Ajahn Kirisara was there, Ajahn Sujito was there, um, Ajahn uh, Anando Viridamo, uh, Venerable Lakana, who was a Swedish bhikkhu, who had been ordained in India, in Bangalore, with uh, Venerable uh, uh, Buddha Rakita. So uh, he was uh, he was there. there. There is a few photographs in this book. There's also was no, no. He uh, Ajahn Tira didn't come until Ajahn Tiradama, Ajahn Manindo. They they both came quite a bit later. And I came in October of seventy nine. So after all of this, after Chithouse was already established. Speak up, Ajahn. I'm getting the good gossip here, Ajahn. What, what was the... Uh, when I was saying, oh, no, I'm talking about Venerable Lakana, uh -huh. who was a, such a different character from the rest of you, monks from Thailand. Venerable <laughs> Lakana had a kind of a, more like a Sri Lankan uh, study background, you know, so he was into quoting and uh, took him very, um, you know, when he was going just looking terribly serious and telling me kind of... Mm. Yeah, he was quite dour. Dour, that's what I had. He was a dour Swede. <laughs> and uh, piercing blue eyes and, and no sense of humour <laughs> that one could tell. And of course, uh, Lumpur Sameda, who's got a very wacky sense of humour, he gave him the nickname Lucky. <laughs> And Venerable Lakana, he was very respectful because also Ajahn Sumedha was senior, and so he was the the highly revered abbot, and so then, um, so then he had this nickname Lucky, that was completely like the antithesis of his character. You know? <laughs> yeah, and so well, the um, initially Ajahn Sujita, who was a sort of stern ascetic. Um, and, and Venerable Lakana, they shared a room. Uh, so Lumpur Sameda had the, the nanny's room, which was a, a tiny little room, because everyone had to share. It was only a, 
There was only like four habitable rooms in the whole house. The rest was filled with dry rot. And so Lumpur had the smallest room, which was the nanny's room next to the, what had been the children's bedroom. So he had the little tiny room by, by himself. And then there was Venerable Lakana and uh, Venerable Sujito on one side. So you had this, um, uh, the stern ascetic Ajahn Sujito and the humorless Scandinavian Venerable Lakana. So there was never a peep from the, the uh, Lakana Sujito side. Meanwhile, Ajahn Kirisaro and Ajahn Anando were giggling half the night. <laughs> and, like, these two unruly Americans who were kind of old buddies and cracking jokes and chatting. And so uh, Lumpur Samit had this wall of noise coming through the, <laughs> this uh, endless chattering from Ajahn Anando and Ajahn Kirisaro. So he had a, a brilliant insight one day. And so he moved Venerable Lakana in with Ajahn Anando. <laughs> and, Ajahn Kirisaro into uh, share the room with Ajahn Sujito. <laughs> so then they had quieter companions and they were able to calm things down a little bit. Yeah, I, I didn't come till October, so I'd, by that time I, I moved into the room with Ajahn Ananda and, and uh, Venerable Lakana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The three of us were in one room. Yeah, it just that was normal. Just everyone had to share. The rest was kind of a bomb site. He had already left by the time I arrived. Uh, so Aranyapo, he was a British monk, and uh, he had been, yeah, well spotted. Yeah, he was part of that initial group in the summer of '79. Right. Uh, he had been in Thailand, and then I think uh, either his father or his mother had fallen ill, and so he'd come back to to England. Um, I think it was his father, because both he and Ajahn Sajito, both their fathers had heart attacks around the same time, so both of them had gone back from Thailand. So Aranyapo. He's the one, if you're familiar with the, the documentary The Buddha Comes to Sussex, and also The Mindful Way, he's a, a British monk who's in, interviewed by the um, documentary makers, and he's a very sort of straightforward, down-to-earth person. And he'd been a policeman and uh, had various different jobs, so that the, they, were, they said he was a very good interviewee, that he was very uh, natural on camera, and they could get lots of good stuff out of him. <laughs> So he was interviewed in both of those those programs. So uh, he had already departed by the time I got there in October, but he was there in the initial group. So it was quite a few, it was about seven or eight monks, and then the, the, the nuns community weren't quite nuns by that time. So there was, uh, there was uh, two novices um, that uh, Venerable Tanavaro was... Um, uh, he was Italian, and he ended up starting the monastery in Italy. And Venerable Kandanya, uh, uh, who was Sri Lankan, and so they uh, they were novices. So when I arrived in October, um, then I was there for the Ajahn Sundra, Ajahn Chandasiri, Sister Rochana, and Sister Tanisra when they had the eight precept ceremony. That was about a week after I got back from Thailand. And then the bhikkhu ordination of Venerable Tanavaro and Venerable Kandanya 
they was on a boat on the River Thames the day after. Uh, they were sort of next to each other. At the end of October in in 1979. So uh, I was there when Ajahn Sundra took the precepts. So we go way back. Some of you probably weren't even born in 1979. Quite a few of you. Yeah. So that's... Uh, Nearly forty years ago. <clears throat> so, but anyway, we haven't we haven't quite got there yet. So, Lumpur Lumpur Cha had, um, as I said, there was a bit of turbulence, and that <clears throat> George Sharp had discovered the the um, property at Chidhurst and had um, uh, not to go into too, too much detail, but then they uh, the trust had agreed to sell the place in London and to buy uh, Chidhurst House, and the. Uh, the forest had been given to them by a, uh, a gentleman called Paul James that they'd met when they were on their arms round in London. I mean, he didn't just sort of stop them and say, can I give you a forest? It was longer than that. but <laughs> it was. They met him on arms round, and then uh, over time, then uh, he, uh, it turned out he had a forest, and he was looking for people to look after it. And here were these forest monks looking for a forest. So that, that, uh, that's how that came together. And so that that had all um, worked itself out by the summer of '79, and they had agreed the purchase, and they were about to to move. So where where that uh, Ajahn Jayasaro's narrative breaks off, it's uh, <coughs> sort of just uh, say in um, in uh, May of '79, and then they they moved into the uh, uh, into the property at Chithurst in June of '79. I think it was Midsummer Day, June June 21st. Uh, summer solstice of uh, 79 that they actually moved down there so that uh, <coughs> there was a, uh, to to casually mention that oh he think he might think of uh, taking Ajahn Sumedho back to to Thailand that was um probably the last thing that people needed to to hear but that's probably why Lumpur said it that they they've got plans for the capital P but okay let's <laughs> just keep uh, Keep reminding people that this is all anicca, that everything is uncertain. So I'll leave it there. Uh, also, uh, tomorrow uh, I have to go to London, so there won't be a reading tomorrow. But should be one the day after. <laughs>